Welcome to the Virtual Word Rounds, a surgery podcast that helps you answer those burning questions you never had a chance to ask by the bedside. Welcome back to the Virtual Word Rounds. Uh, today it is only me and Rosie. Hi, Rosie. Hello. How are you? Nice to be here. Like, likewise, uh, it's it's a pleasure. And uh, Rosie, we've been doing a lot of uh, pathophysiology uh, in the recent weeks. We've done bowel obstructions and diverticular disease and diverticulitis. Uh, I I miss the the clinical sort of hands-on um, practical stuff that the virtual ward rounds was all about. Do you miss that too? Look, at the moment, everything for me is just. <laughs> you know, brand new information that I'm trying to get my head around. Um, But going back to the basics, particularly around surgery stuff, which is so practical, is really nice. I really like doing these episodes. So I'm glad we're back here. Yes. And uh, so today's episode is going to be very practical. And it is not technically very surgical because we're going to be talking about fluids. Uh, Mm -hmm. This topic is applicable to any uh, hospital population. But Uh, I'm going to try and approach it from a surgical perspective. And so this is going to be a little bit simpler, but hopefully is going to give our listeners uh, a little bit of a overview of how to approach fluid management uh, in patients. Fluid management is a huge topic and it's very confusing for medical students. It's one of the most confusing topics. I remember when we first got introduced fluids uh two fluids in first year everyone lost their mind a little bit (laughs) you know the idea of there being different kinds of fluids and different fluid components can be really really overwhelming so I'm really glad that you're saying we're going to try and simplify it today and just Mm. cover you know the core stuff of what do you need to know um, when it comes to fluids IV fluids and inpatients I find fluids um fairly straightforward if you compartmentalize them a little bit and break them up. So from from the surgical perspective, the fluids can be broken up into four very generic terms. We can have fluids for resuscitation. Okay, Okay. so someone who is either bleeding or septic or hypovolemic for another reason. Then you have uh, patients uh, who need maintenance fluids. So that usually comes after resuscitation. Uh, Then you have fluids that you use for electrolyte replacement. Okay, and electrolyte replacement is something that confuses people a lot, but it doesn't have to be. And I will, and we will talk about it probably in in the coming episodes. And then Finally, we everybody forgets about it, but we use fluids for therapeutic modalities. But we're not going to talk about those into in in, in great detail. Just as long as you remember about those, uh, I think it's mm-hmm. is going to be uh, sufficient. Okay, so we have we have four different main areas to do with fluids that we need to know about, and that's resuscitation fluid. So someone's lost a lot of fluid and we need to replace it maintenance fluid so they can't take it orally is that really what that means they can't get enough orally so we need to um subsidize with iv fluids that's that's correct so mainly yeah. is uh, those are patients that are either waiting for surgery or are post-surgical patients with no gut function or that you know that yeah. hasn't, haven't restarted yet and i guess somebody who's vomiting a lot or has diarrhea or is otherwise losing losing fluids would also need maintenance therapy 
Exactly, and that and that and that you will need to go on top of the normal requirement because this will be extra losses. I'm already starting to understand why, it, as simple as it can sound, it is quite complicated. Each patient's going to be different, and each illness that you're you're treating, each surgery that you're dealing with, will be slightly different because it will have slightly different effects on the fluid. It can be, it can be, but it doesn't have to be. As long as you understand what you're doing and what you're giving, there are very simple rules of thumb that are going to get you out of 95% of situations. So yeah. yes, there are, you have to think about a lot of different variabilities and and you know ages, uh, electrolytes, comorbidities, reasons, etc. Uh, but the solutions are usually fairly straightforward, and I'm going to try and consolidate that for you uh, by the end of today's podcast. Excellent. So just to finish my summary, we have four key fluid areas to think about. That is resuscitation fluids, maintenance fluids, uh, electrolytes, which are part of the fluids and also therapeutic fluids. So fluids being used to deliver antibiotics or um, some other form of therapy that the patient needs. That's correct. And so today I reckon let's just have a chat about uh, resuscitation. Uh, I find that a lot of people stumble with that, but it doesn't mm -hmm. have to be hard. So now we are going to be talking about adults. I don't feel that I'm qualified to go into too much detail <laughs> about pediatric resuscitation. I think I should leave it to the expert pediatricians there. Rosie, on sort of on, on a history and examination, how do you determine that a patient may need a resuscitation as a bolus of fluids given to them? Okay, well, let's start with history. So say somebody has come in or I'm seeing them for the very first time. Um, I guess I want to know about whether they've been eating and drinking for the last few days, um, what their symptoms are. So if they've been vomiting or they've had lots of diarrhea, then I want to know that and I want to know how long it's been going on for. Other things I would want to know about are fever. So if they've been really unwell with a high fever for a long time, they can lose a lot of fluids. I guess also just thinking about presentations that you could have. If somebody's been um, uh, doing, you know, a huge amount of exercise and activity and they haven't been keeping, uh, keeping hydrated during all of that or it's been an incredibly hot couple of days and they haven't been able to maintain fluids properly, Basically, I would want to know about anything that means they're not getting a normal amount of fluid into their system or they're losing an excessive amount of fluid. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a very, very good point. And you've, you've, you've mentioned a lot of different uh, situations whereby from history you can anticipate that this patient is going to be dry. Uh, as far as like an overarching structure of this um, is, is on history, you need to see if the patients have been taking up enough fluids so that mm -hmm. if, if they cannot drink, if their intake is reduced, uh, that will tell you that they're probably going to be uh, behind on fluids. Uh, then you think about how the output. So if they are vomiting, if they have uh, profound diuresis, you know, in, in patients presenting with, for example, diabetes, uh, or patients who have profound diarrhea, so their output is going to be high. And then mm -hmm. the, 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 third, the third point is you talk about um, insensate losses. So evaporation, um, third spacing uh, due yeah. to intra-abdominal sepsis, um, uh, you know, abnormally hot days, uh, fevers, 
all of those things. So if you if you think about it in these sort of three um, three different stages: lack of intake, too much output, and then increased uh, insensate losses, then your history taking can be targeted a little bit towards that. Now, as far as examination goes, what are some of the findings uh, that will prompt you to think that this patient may be a bit dry? I guess the first place you'd want to look is their vitals. So uh, heart rate, blood pressure can tell you a lot about somebody's fluid status. Um, if their heart rate is really high and their blood pressure is low, then that could indicate that there's a volume problem. Uh, mm -hmm. Looking at some simple things like capillary refill, um, their respiratory rate. Is their respiratory rate going to be high if they are dehydrated? So the respiratory rate is not necessarily high because of the dehydration, but it can be a sign of an underlying sepsis or okay. acid-based disturbance. Okay. Okay. So, uh, so uh, heart rate more than ninety, blood pressure less than hundred, caprifil, which is less than two uh, or longer than two seconds, and uh, higher respiratory rate. Uh, a lot of those numbers overlap with uh, something very, we see very commonly in 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 what we call SIRS, systemic inflammatory response syndrome. Now, if you have signs of SIRS, you know that your insensate losses are going to be higher you're I going see. to have vasodilatation and third spacing and you're going to be intravascularly depleted so yes. you know they they work they work together i mean low blood pressure and increased heart rate um they they don't happen immediately if you um if you are a little bit dehydrated after a long day at the beach uh, it's you, you're not going to be um uh, tachycardic and hypotensive, uh, but you will be dry. You will be dehydrated mm. already. Mm. So the first, so we, we talk about the different stages of uh, hypovolemic shock classification and uh, mm. the heart rate and blood pressure are in the second and third stages of shock. In the first stages of shock, you may not actually see those numbers. I see. So that's when they, they change when the, when you're really starting to compensate for that's correct. Loss. That's correct. But you can anticipate that from so a lot of the a lot of patients that present to the emergency department that are dry, they have a fairly uh, typical appearance. They have they they look tired. They yeah. look uh, they have a bit of a gray discoloration. Their eyes are a bit sunken. They keep constantly lick their mouths and their tongue is parched and dry. If they have sepsis or they severely hypovolemic, then you see the changes in their blood pressure, heart rate, respiratory rate, but you also can feel their hands and their shoulders and you can see that there's a significant gradient in temperature. They're peripherally shut down because of their hypovolemia or under, and or underlying sepsis. You can also just ask them if they're thirsty. Most mm. patients, even those patients that are throwing up because of bowel obstruction or sepsis, they will tell you that they're really thirsty and they, they like to, they want to drink, but they keep on throwing up. Mm. There are a bunch of other signs that you can check uh, to assess a patient's fluid balance. Uh, classically, those are uh, decreased skin turgor, uh, jugular venous pressure, decreased urine output or urine output that is abnormally concentrated is a very good one. Uh, presence or absence of peripheral edema that may signify a degree of left ventricular failure that may 
make you want to go a little bit easier with the fluid resuscitation. But if you have a patient, even in significant heart failure, that is clinically dry, resuscitating them is safe and it should be done. Do not be scared of resuscitating a patient who is dry. That's a really good point because we it really is drilled into us that like fluid resuscitation has to be managed very carefully in people with heart failure. But if they're severely depleted, then, then there's a buffer. You're going to have to refill them before you can start overloading them. If either on history or examination, you think that this patient is behind on their fluids, those patients will likely benefit from initial fluid resuscitation. You don't need the patient to be in category three hypovolemic shock. If your patient comes in with small bowel obstruction for the last 24 hours, they are going to be hypovolemic. They will benefit from a fluid bolus. Excellent. And I've got one last question while we're on the assessing um, a patient side of things. Are there any investigations we can do to help determine fluid status? Uh, that's a very good question. And uh, thanks for reminding me of that, uh, Rosie. When we talk about fluid resuscitation, we normally uh, talk about uh, a patient that is coming into the emergency department and we don't have a lot of information, a lot of blood tests to go by. Blood tests take a couple of hours to, uh, to come back, uh, imaging scans and everything else and diagnosis may take four, five, six hours. Uh, but we need to be treating the patient uh, before, before that. And uh, blood venous gas, a VBG or an ABG, can give us a lot of uh, information on the patient's uh, basic acid-base ba acid balance, uh, but on electrolytes, but also on their peripheral perfusion. And lactate is a marker of peripheral perfusion. So in patients mm -hmm. who are dehydrated, lactate will be up. And once you give this patient a fluid bolus, bolus, once you've started your resuscitation, that lactate will start to decrease quite dramatically and quite rapidly. A lot of the times we talk about lactate in the setting of ischemia, but you're not going to see that very often. The majority of the times your lactate is going to be high in patients who are dry and giving them yeah. a bolus of fluid and then checking the lactate again about an hour or two down the track and watching it uh, reduce is very, very satisfying. Yeah, I can imagine. You can see your medicine working. Exactly. And also, <laughs> as we mentioned in the previous episodes, uh, while you're assessing the patient, while you're doing all the formal investigations and working through your differentials, if this patient is historically and clinically dry, okay, uh, and or they are in pain, if you give them a resuscitating bolus of fluids and some analgesia, they're going to be really, really friendly with you because they're going to trust you <laughs> because you have already yeah. made them better in the first 30 minutes of seeing them. Okay, so we want to make the patient happy and feel better. I've heard in my few years of medical school about a a lot of different kinds of fluids that can be used. But in this situation, what are the main fluids that we would want to use to resus a patient? The, the broad umbrella terms that we hear about is crystalloid, okay, yes. which is basically salt solutions. They can be either um, sodium 
uh, chloride solutions. Uh, they can be a complex salt solutions like uh, Ringer's lactate or Hartmann's that has mm -hmm. a bit of potassium, a bit of sodium, uh, a, a bit of chloride, a bit of bicarbonate, uh, or it could contain uh, different solutions uh, of sodium and uh, glucose. So those mm -hmm. are normally used in kids. So for example, uh, a 4% in a fifth or 5% or glucose is something or dextrose is something that would be uh, commonly using in children. And I'm not going to say any more about that because I really don't know enough about a pediatric resuscitation. So crystalloid is one. The second one is we're talking about colloid solutions. And in colloid solutions, mm -hmm. we've got synthetic colloid solutions. Uh, so synthetic protein. Uh, and the common one that we've got here in Australia is a gel of fusion. I'm not sure what the actual product um, uh, name is. This is a trade name. Uh, and we have and we have organic colloids, which is uh, albumin. Colloids are not used uh, in Australia very widely these days uh, because they have recent they have fallen out of favor in the recent years um, due to side effects and complications, specifically attributed to synthetic colloids. And the synthetic colloids are not used uh, pretty much anywhere apart from uh, on the field of battle where the, the weight of uh, supply carried uh, is, is quite important. And uh, gel solutions or gel effusing solutions work by drawing um, the, some of the interstitial fluid uh, from your tissue into the bloodstream uh, and thereby increasing circulating blood volume. I see. And, but albumin still used occasionally in the setting of profound sepsis uh, and occasionally um, uh, poor nutritional uh, status uh, and significant mm -hmm. uh, peripheral uh, edema. The evidence is poor. They cost a lot and they do have side effects, including anaphylaxis, uh, renal uh, disturbances and, and others. So as far as resuscitation goes, uh, they're pretty much off the table. The best fluid for resuscitating a patient in trauma is blood. Of course. And we, and we do have a podcast on massive transfusion protocol because uh, blood by, them, by itself is, is very good for resuscitation. But if you use more than two units, you need to really consider uh, giving other blood products with it mm -hmm. to uh, avoid coagulopathy. Mm -hmm. but, it, but you need to think about that. You need to think about coagulopathy. You need to think about end organ perfusion. And you need to think about maintain, maintenance of your cardiac output as well. So I guess the only thing we haven't talked about yet, we've, we've talked about um, how to assess a patient, um, what the goals of resu fluid resuscitation are, the kinds of things that you can use in fluid resuscitation, but how much fluid we're actually giving them uh, is probably an important question to answer. If I determine that the patient is behind on their fluids, if I don't have anything that prevents me from resuscitating them, they're not, you know, they're not frothing at their mouths and have profound <laughs> peripheral edema uh, and signs of, um, uh, you know, heart failure or liver failure. Then I normally go fairly aggressively. Uh, the guidelines for resuscitation they start at between 20 to 40 mils of uh, crystalloid 
per kilogram of body weight for an adult patient. Uh, And that is uh, supposed to be given in the first two hours. I normally have a rule of thumb that if the patient is, is, is above 45 kilos, and they, they, they dry, they need resuscitation, and they don't have any factors that's, that, that make me want to slow it down. Uh, then I give them a liter stat, which basically is uh, a liter of crystalloid as fast as the cannula would allow. Uh, usually goes through over about 20 minutes to 40 minutes, depending on the size of your cannula. And then I follow that up with a liter over two hours. Okay, so it's actually quite... It can be quite simple. <laughs> it, it's, it can be quite. It can be quite simple. That's right. And and the thing is, it it, it works. And unless you and as and as I said, unless you've got extremes of age, extremes of comorbidities, that is within the ballpark of recommendations, pretty much always. Now, as far as the choice of fluid goes, so we're talking about crystalloids. So we going to in in the adults, we're going to use normal saline for resuscitation, or Hartman's solution. Both okay. are reasonable. And as far as resuscitation goes, I don't think that one is better than the other. Okay, they both have their pros and cons. And we can dive into a little bit of detail when we talk about electrolyte um, abnormalities and how to manage those. Uh, but as far as resuscitation goes, uh, a liter of saline or a liter of Hartman's is not going to change anything. Okay, that's really good to know. That's definitely a point that uh, that I think a lot of medical students are going to appreciate. For resuscitation, normal saline and Hartman's are pretty much going to give the same effect for the patient. And if you do have a patient who is small or a patient who is very old and has got a known left ventricular ejection fraction of 20 and despite them having intraabdominal sepsis, they've got significant peripheral edema, you can half it. Okay, you can yeah. basically start with 500. How much, Rosie, do you know how much fluid is going to end up in your intravascular space after you have given it? Uh, we're talking about crystalloid. Do you remember what the number is? I really don't. It's, 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 yeah, it's, it's a third. It's a third. Okay, okay? so if you, give, if you give a liter to a patient stat, about 350 mils of that are going to end up in your bloodstream wow that's That's not much is it and then if you know it's not much and then and that that assumes that your physiology is normal that you have normal level of proteins in your blood if you have if you are malnourished and your albumin is low most of that fluid is going to just leak out Mm. into your tissues Mm, that's a really good point because yeah and that's that was that was the sort of the the reasoning behind all of those gel-based solutions uh that we now know are more trouble than they're worth uh, but but we we can't keep the crystalloid inside the veins for very long, and so if you give 500 mils uh, to a patient and you have a reason to do that, they either very small, uh, not particularly dry, or they've got you know they they're frothing at their mouth and you need to trot carefully. Uh, then a third of a third of that is what hundred. Yeah, 40, that's not much ending up mils. in the in the actual that's blood system. Not a lot at all. No. Mm. So, but people that people that uh, go into the emergency department and and bolus their patients, uh, two hundred and fifty mils boluses, they're really it's it's really a homeopathic approach. <laughs> and I'm not sure I'm not sure if any of our listeners are fans of homeopathic approach, but I don't believe in it. <laughs> Okay. It's not uh, evidence-based medicine, think, is it? <laughs> it's not evidence-based medicine. So 
250 meals for a patient with small bowel obstruction who've been uh, not eating and drinking for, for, for 24 hours and been chucking their guts out for, for as, as long uh, is, is, is not mm. going to give you mm. anything. It's not going to achieve anything. And if your lactate is, going, is what was four at the start of your resuscitation and you, don't, and you resuscitate them inadequately, then lactate is not going to move. So for me, it's a liter stat mm -hmm. followed by a liter over two hours. And then you can recheck your lactate if your lactate was elevated and you can be reassured with the lactate coming back to almost normal after that resuscitation approach. Now, if after these first two liters of resuscitation, your patient is persistently hypotensive and tachycardic, then this patient is in trouble. Okay. Okay. And that also gives you, uh, allows you to uh, call up your, uh, medical registrar or person in the intensive care or high dependency and say, look, uh, this patient may need to come to you. And if they ask you if you have tried resuscitating them appropriately, uh, you can say yes and you can feel good about it. Yeah. We've discussed how to assess a patient's hydration status. We've discussed the kinds of fluids that we can use. We've discussed what the goal of rehydration is or the different goals of um, rehydration. And we've also talked about the dose and the, the amount of fluid that you actually want to give somebody. All right. Uh, next time, we're going to talk about uh, maintenance fluids. Looking forward to it. Virtual Board Rounds is available wherever you get your podcasts. For updates, follow us on Instagram and Twitter, or to send your thoughts, queries, concerns, comments, you can also email us at virtualworldrounds at gmail.com. Until next time, happy studies.